I can't believe I've done 10 episodes of this podcast. This is unreal. It feels amazing. And thank you so much for all the feedback that you've been giving me in person, online, through messages and DMs. Thank you so much. I really want to hear more from you about what you want to talk what you want me to talk about on this podcast. So hop on to Twitter, follow us on Twitter, we're at Heckin' Concern, or on Instagram, we're at Heckin' Concerned Pod, or on Facebook, we're at Heckin' Concerned Podcast. That's just the page name. And, and please tell me what you want me to talk about on this episode. Because this is about things that scare millennials and Gen Z. And you tell me, I'm scared about everything. So what do you want me to focus on? Today's episode is the second part of the two-part series on men's mental health that we started last week with an interview with the Indian writer Suthaushu Mitra. And this week we're discussing men's mental health in a bit more detail with Carl Nelms of Blokes Psychology. Carl is a psychologist who has a practice in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne called Bloke Psychology, which is dedicated to working with men. In this episode, Carl and I discuss the differences in the way that men and women express emotions. Um, we, we talk about some common misconceptions about men's mental health, like men don't have emotions or men don't need to express emotions. And, and Carl talks about from his experience, the particular factors that affect the mental health of Gen Y and Gen Z boys and men. And and then in the end, we also go through some coping strategies for tough times. So please listen to this and share this episode with the men and women, boys and girls in your life, because we all need to know a little bit more about how that pink blob in our heads works. And also, if you feel like you want to support the production of this podcast, please hop on to our Patreon page and become a patron for any amount of money that you can give us from a dollar to a million dollars a month um, to help us cover the costs of producing this podcast. Um, it would be greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you the important issues. All right. Thank you so much and enjoy this podcast. This is Amrita, and you're listening to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Hi, Carl. Hi, Amrita. <laughs> Welcome to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Thank you, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I've been waiting to interview you for a long time, and I've been talking up this interview with everyone that I meet. Hey, hey, listen in. We've got a psychologist <laughs> who deals with men's psychology. And I've just, so many people are so excited, their eyes become wide, and they really love the concept of hearing about men's psychology. I think it's because, especially women, just like you know how men have this thing that, oh, we don't really know what women are thinking. <laughs> women have this thing that we don't really know what the hell men are thinking. Yeah. I yeah. know that's a generalization, but... Well, and it's so rare too, so rare to have, a, I suppose, a specific interest in mental, men's mental health. Yeah, so. yeah. So what got you started it? Why did you decide to start bloke psychology for men? I, I identified working in a community health setting that there was a, a real lack of services tailor-made for men, for boys and men. Um, it was a conversation I was having with a client when working for Gambler's Help and basically he'd come in 
uh, because things had gotten to breaking point. And I basically said to him, you know, it sounds like you could have reached out for help 10, 20 years ago. Why didn't you? And he said, well, where would I have gone? And at the time, I was a bit naive. I said, well, there's mental health clinics everywhere. And he said, yes, but if you go on the websites, look at their marketing, all of those sort of things, he goes, they're all tailored towards women. What is it about part. it that's tailored towards women? What were they picking up on? Uh, I think just the the terminology, the the in terms of you know mindfulness, well being. These are terms that we associate often with feminine qualities. Ah. And there's, there's this uh, also this idea and this notion that in university we we as psychs are taught how to deal with clients who want to be there. Who clients right. who 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 wanting therapy, whereas I take the perspective that most blokes don't want to be sitting opposite me, paying me to help them sort out their issues. So you've got to take a very different approach. Then. Mm. I was talking to somebody last night, a man, about this, and he said he feels he doesn't open up easily to people anyway. He's not going to go and sit in a room with a psychologist and just talk about his feelings. You know, like that the sole purpose of being there is to talk about feelings. That scares a lot of people. But for some reason, especially men. Yeah. Um, I've also had experiences with guys who have... um, And when I say guys, I'm going to be talking about people who identify as men, um, like cis, trans, everything, but just people who identify as men. Mm Mm-hmm. They have this, often, this chip on their shoulder that they need to deal with their problems themselves. It's like they need to be the person that's providing for everyone and being there for everyone and need to solve all of their issues themselves. Yeah, correct. Why? I think it's a very, very big uh, question. But in my personal belief, I think it stems from, you know, hunter-gatherer culture, regardless of what you believe. As hunter-gatherers in different cultures, the men were the providers and the protectors. And to a large degree, despite how far we've come in society, we, we still hold on to that, that notion, that idea of men are self-reliant, they're protectors, and they're, uh, I suppose, they're, I wouldn't say it's not okay to be vulnerable, but they're expected that yeah. to be the rock in most cases. Patriarchy. Yes. Patriarchy affects <laughs> men just as much as women, people. It does. It does. Um, I, my, um, for listeners, you would have noticed that last week's episode was all about how patriarchy really stunts men's emotional growth and expression. Hmm. Um, and how there is no space between men's circles even to talk about feelings really. There's, there might be metaphors and there might be roundabout ways of talking about feelings or there might be activities like sports that help to vent certain feelings, but no real sitting down and talking to one another. What the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> Something's that was going on outside. <laughs> car farting? I don't know. Um, so, okay, so when you were growing up, mm. were you a very emotionally aware kid? Oh, good question. Uh, I would say to a large degree I was because I had a lot of uh, strong, strong female influences in my life, whether it be Ah. my mother, my aunties, my grandmothers. Um, For the most part, yeah, I was surrounded by a lot of strong, strong women. So what was modeled to you was talking about feelings and sorting it out? To a large degree. Okay. Not in all instances, but to a large degree, yeah. yes. I mean, it's not to say that all women are perfect at talking about feelings and sorting it out. No. Uh, women and men are human and have an equally bad relationship with emotional 
feelings. But I think that women are encouraged to just talk more. Of course, yeah. of course. I mean, that stigma still exists around mental health and emotions and vulnerability with females. But yeah. as you said, I think it's exaggerated for males. It is. Okay, so back to your childhood. So you grew up in a house with a lot of women around. Mm. And were your main emotional relationships with men or women? Like, did you have an also male um, role models or adults? There, there were male role models, but I think like a lot of blokes, especially in my generation, uh, they were not necessarily constructive in terms of the emotional space or the psychological space in terms of encouraging emotional expression or role modeling psychological well-being or self-care or any of those things so there might be you know anybody from my father to soccer coaches to um other other parents other friends parents and those sort of things i mean i think it's just the nature of our parents generation uh that that's what it was to be a man yeah but you were talking on on the other podcast that you did uh, you were talking about how your best friend's dad was actually a little bit different and encouraged <laughs> you to study psychology. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. No, he, yeah, wow, I forgot about that. Yeah, so my friend James, his, his father pretty much said, no, you're going to work with uh, people the rest of your life, regardless of what profession you're in. When you got the option to do psychology as an elective at uh, high school, do it. Because whatever job you do, whether you're a janitor or a CEO, mm. you need to work with people. Mm. And the better you can understand them, the, the easier it is to develop a rapport and the better you'll get on. That's pretty good mm. for, you know, when psychology as an option, career choice for a lot of young people wasn't that common um, when you were a kid, probably. Even when I was a kid. Now a lot of Gen Z mm. is becoming, like, many people are moving towards psychology as a career choice. But in our parents' generation, that wasn't so common either. No. And I think it's, it's crazy when you step back and think about that, that I'm 30 now, but I even think back to when I was in high school, mental health was still, I mean, as teenagers, we had no knowledge of it. Depression, anxiety, you go back 20 years and you think the stigma must have been just tenfold. Yeah. Around, wow, you're going to therapy. What, what, you must be pretty messed up. Yeah. I remember my... my um, when we were new to Australia, my dad finally um, got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm. And he, uh, my mom was telling some family friends of ours in the Indian community that my husband has depression. And they were like, especially the man in that couple were like, but why is he depressed? I don't understand what he has to be depressed about. And it was so... Um, the stigma around that and, and just the lack of knowledge about what depression means was so profound. And my family felt really lonely. And I, I think my dad felt really lonely as well mm. because he felt that maybe he wasn't as put together as other men out there who didn't talk about depression or, you know. So I, I, I know that, that stigma and I know how it really affects people. Well, that, that idea of normalizing too, mm. because for a lot of blokes who I see, regardless of their age, once they realize that, hey, what you're going through is pretty normal given the circumstances and, you know, these are the statistics and these are the amount of clients I'm seeing with the exact same issues, like, it's almost like a weight's taken off their shoulders because they realize they're not alone. Yeah. I think um, men have, okay, I'm sorry if... Listeners, there's going to be some generalizations. I'll try and be very careful, but sometimes just when I'm speaking, things might just come out as men do this or men have blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry about that. But 
Um, sometimes men just cut off when they're stressed. They stop talking and communicating. There might be body language, like crossing their arms over and looking away. And I myself have been like this in, you know, in relationships or in friendships where if the person across from me who's a man doesn't want to talk about his feelings or can't understand what's going on, they just like, there's an iron wall that comes down. Yeah. Um, I wonder how that developed as a coping mechanism. I think going back to that idea of men being self-reliant, mm. if the, if you can't sort out a problem. Yeah. So you, you're you afraid of looking stupid or... Well, that vulnerability too. And, and I often say to blokes, you know, whether it be your work or your relationship, these sort of things, guys often try and latch to this idea of control. And that's great. You can either... But but I suppose when you translate that to thoughts and emotions, that that idea of control almost perpetuates and makes the problem worse, mm. which is why guys shut down because they feel so overwhelmed. They don't know how to express it. They don't have the language a lot of the times. So they don't know what is an appropriate way to express it. So then the default, like uh, many of us resort to at times, is avoidance. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the idea of control is very common in a lot of mental health issues, wanting to control the outcome of things causes anxiety, mm. regardless of whether it's men or women. Um, and letting go of control and just accepting, so ACT therapy, right? Acceptance and commitment therapy. Accepting that um, things that there are good states and there are bad states and you don't have to control the outcome of everything is very scary and takes a lot of work to finally accept that you don't have control over life. It is not predictable. Yeah, and I, I love ACT. That's probably been my, my go-to with a lot of blokes. Okay. Because that, that, as you said, that idea of control, trying to control your thoughts. I don't want to have these negative thoughts. I don't want to have these intrusive thoughts. I don't want to feel like this. Whereas if you can, again, as you said, it's not easy, but if you can get to a space where you can treat your thoughts as just thoughts. Mm. You know, as adults, we have 80 to 120,000 thoughts every day. Wow. Now you step back and think about that. That's crazy. Yeah. But there's often... If somebody's experiencing anxiety or distress or depression, there's often four or five stories that your mind tells you mm. that are the same. You're not good enough. Things aren't going to work out. This is going to go terribly. They're not going to like you. Mm. And if you can distance yourself and learn strategies to distance yourself from those thoughts, that's incredibly empowering. Mm. And same with the emotions. Accepting that as human beings, part of the human condition is having what we would call positive and negative emotions but embracing them regardless, that's, again, extremely empowering. Mm. It is empowering. It is empowering to realize that you don't have to shoulder the burden of making everything around you work, that shit happens for everyone. Yeah. And it's happening right now. Yeah. So when you first started studying psychology, did you start thinking about your... Did you have a personal growth moment where you were thinking about your own experiences and, you know how you have probably been repressed? I think it's an ongoing process. Okay. <laughs> I think I still have client sessions where I'm driving home and I'm reflecting on my own life, on my own identity. There are narratives I've been uh, conditioned by. So I think it's an ongoing process. Yeah. I wouldn't say there was one particular moment. Yeah. Do you have siblings? Uh, yes, a younger sister. Okay. Yes. So, okay. So if, you had, so if you had a sister, so that as well would have led to a different kind of communication with the sibling, right? Mm. Were you and your sister, are you close? 
Yeah, I'd say we're pretty close. Yeah. We're pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you, when you were growing up, did you talk about what's going on with her? Probably not. We're six years apart, so there's always been a bit, bit of a, I yeah. suppose, gap. Right. Uh, but definitely more recently, in our yeah. 20s, a lot. Yeah. Is it... I was talking to um, Sudhanshu Mitra, who I interviewed last for last week's episode, and he was telling... He, he wrote an article about how it's easy for men to open up to women, but not other men. And often for f- that means... A romantic relationship often emotional intimacy is reserved for a romantic relationship or a sexual relationship and it's often becomes tied in with romance and it's out of the like it's out of the context of everyday life especially in men's circles yeah um i found that so sad as well that sitting with you're sitting with your best friend who's a guy and how many men will actually be talking about fear and anxiety and unexpressible irrational thoughts or whatever you know um there's this very two-dimensional idea of men perpetuated by the media perpetuated by the patriarchy i would say it's an umbrella term but but like you know you have cartoons like you have a a man's head and a brain and inside the brain there's like one section for sports one section for beer one section for sex and one section for food (laughs) and i've seen that idea so much surely that's not true definitely men and women are complex human beings and it's not that you know men are from mars where everyone is just dumb and blokey like and women are from venus where everyone's just always thinking and feeling and talking yeah i think there's a lot of misconceptions and myths around men yeah Yeah, the sex one's interesting a lot of again i don't want to generalize but a lot a lot of women a lot of media even a lot of men think sex 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 beer just you know typical boys stuff yeah whereas if you actually i mean i feel extremely privileged to speak to a lot of men about these issues that where they are just extremely vulnerable and they lay it all out they will tell you that it's not in relationships for example sex is not the most important thing but even when there is a lack of that or that they're they're expressing their thoughts on that it's not about the physical act itself it's about feeling validated feeling desired that that deep connection to their partner uh, that that they they crave and and almost yeah, a lot of guys talk about sex as being permission to be vulnerable because you you can't be any more vulnerable with another person um, when you're being physically intimate. Oh, that's so sad that the permission to be vulnerable has to come under such conditions mm. of a certain set of you know a certain set of conditions of. A relationship or a sexual partnership of some sort it has to have the right moment it has to have every, like the alchemy has to be perfect for a guy to express vulnerability with yeah. somebody somebody else that's a lot of pressure to keep things bottled up until just the right moment yeah it is for a lot of guys it is and unfortunately you know looking at the suicide statistics in australia and even the western world it's too much pressure for a lot of guys too much pressure mm. I heard this idea, again, I keep referencing last week's episode because to me this is like a two-part episode about, you know, men's mental and emotional needs. But Sudhashu was saying that 
sometimes he didn't know if what he wanted was sex or what he wanted was just a hug and just to be with the person and talk and sometimes it was almost a pressure to be sexual because that was the thing expected of a man if there is sex is initiated then i have to follow through um because that's the contract that's the only way i get to be vulnerable yeah do men feel the, like you know we talk a lot about women feeling the pressure to perform during sex feeling the pressure to give sex when it's wanted and of course of course there are a lot of um power structures there there is a lot of subjugation of women in many parts of the world in sexual relationships but men also have the pressure to live up to this always ready for sex don't mm. they yeah no i think and you said yourself media hollywood just perpetuates this and makes it so so much worse um the expectation that i think it's interesting what you, your last guest said that, that that a lot of the times he couldn't figure out whether it was uh, i suppose a hug or just talking or whether it was sex and that speaks to what we're just touching on that it, it's often sex enables that feeling of deep connection and that that expectation uh that they always want it and always ready to go is just a complete myth Mm. complete myth of course men and women are human yeah especially as men age too especially right. as men age because i think oh, God, i think it's from 25 or maybe 30 onwards you know every year the testosterone levels drop and drop and drop mm. but when you're younger whether you're a man or a woman when you're a teenager you're horny oh yeah right so i think when you age like regardless of um gender or sex you all all people generally start thinking a bit more deeply about what they really want in the situation but when you're younger it's like you're horny if you're sick you're horny if you're bored you're horny if you're lonely <laughs> you're, you know you're just horny all the time yes um and it's just unfairly categorized i think is a gender difference sometimes yeah. and I, this is slightly off on a tangent but it had a very interesting thing that doesn't get talked a lot about or enough about is pornography in men mm mm-hmm. When when I ask on my intake form, I ask all guys, doesn't matter if they're 13 or 80, how often, you know, how often do you drink substances, caffeine, pornography? Okay. And as soon as you ask about pornography, they're all, uh, I've never been asked that before. And wow. the amount of guys who say, oh, just the normal amount. And you say, what's the normal amount? Now for a guy I had a few months ago, oh, one or two times a day. Wow. And you go, hang on a second. <laughs> How long has you been doing that for? Oh, since I was 15. Okay, so that's 20 years. 20 years of your mind being bombarded by porn one or two times a day. Yeah. And if you look at the the how pornography affects the brain mm-hmm. and the, the neural pathways that develops, but also the ideas of sex and intimacy and women, all those different layers about pornography that that reinforces in somebody looking at it once or twice a day for... 20 years you're it's inevitable you're going to have not only sexual erectile issues but also relationship issues because of your expectations about intimacy and sex Mm, mm. and that's something with teenagers that i'm talking to them about all the time because they go oh no one's talking about this and porn addiction is a huge huge thing and that further i suppose confuses men's idea of intimacy and sex and that whole cesspool, I suppose, of what ends up being huge issues for guys. And I don't think that porn is 
contributing in any way to men's positive body image either. No. You have no. like, unless you're watching different kinds of porn, but the mainstream <laughs> porn is really buff guys who are always erect and ready to go. With huge penises. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That can go for hours. That can go for hours that are, you know, so flexible in any position. And yeah, it must be putting so much pressure on guys to be consuming that. And such a terrible cycle that you need that to be turned on because you probably um, have now conditioned your mind to be turned on by that. Yeah. But it makes you feel really shit about yourself and real life partners who don't look like what what's on the screen. Yeah. And it makes it harder to be turned on in real life, perhaps. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, I don't do sex therapy specifically, so mm -hmm. I always refer on, but I get a lot of guys who go, I've never been able to maintain an erection or finish with a partner. And these are guys in their mid 20s. And they say, I know I've been looking at porn twice a day since I was 13 or 10 or 12. Or other guys who go, oh, I'm just, you know, sex with my partner's boring. And you go, well, how often are you watching porn? Oh, an hour a day. Well, <laughs> yeah, wow. that's like watching a, a, a Hollywood romance and saying that my relationship it's not doesn't like that. correlate with that. Wow, I can imagine because in real life interactions, sex is so much about in what's in the mind. Mm. Sex is very mental, but on the screen, it's purely physical. There is no emotional, there is no intellectual uh, stimulation of any sort there. There are no other emotions except the base view of incredible pleasure or perhaps fear or something like that in porn. Wow. So I can imagine how there's just no avenue to um, explore what what makes sex sexual yeah. um, in a relationship between two humans. And the other side of that, I suppose, I know we're shooting off on a bizarre tangent. No, it's, moment, this is relevant. This is relevant. <laughs> the other side of that is if you think about somebody who's watching pornography even two, three times a, a week, that's 150 times a year. They do that for five, 10 years. What often happens is then, whether it started off as an addiction or not, and what causes that, that's a whole other discussion. But if you're doing that regularly, then that becomes a way of managing stress, managing boredom, yeah. you know, self-regulating. And that's when the addiction sets in because mm -hmm. that's, that's your outlet that you've developed. And given all the other implications of regular pornography use we just discussed, that's a very dangerous outlet you know, about a month ago, I met with a lady who works in a similar um, geographical location to me. And her whole clinic is she's a porn addiction men's specialist. That's it. That's what she does. And she gets uh, people flying in from all over the country and doing international video consults because nobody's talking about this issue. Wow. This is, and it's interesting that she's a woman, but she's working in men's mental health. Yeah. Uh, so why aren't women asked about porn addiction or how many times they watch porn on intake forms for, for women? That is a very good question. I'm probably not the best person <laughs> to ask that. I've never been asked that. <laughs> well, men, men, uh, interestingly, men, I would argue, aren't asked that either in most yeah. places. Right, you know, right, a right. lot of guys who have seen doctors, neurologists, psychiatrists, which you know, is bizarre that a psychiatrist wouldn't ask given the chemical uh, impacts of pornography on the brain, if they're going to prescribe you medication, you thought you'd be asking, but even clients who have seen numerous uh, mental health clinicians never been asked because mm. I think still think there's a huge taboo around it. Yeah. And you notice that as soon as I ask and a teenager or even a guy who's my age looks at me a bit like, oh, uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm really happy that you ask and 
for me as well in my relationship with my therapist talking about sex talking about sexual fantasies has been a real watershed moment in understanding my own other neuroses and how that affects what i watch or what i do or what i think or feel yeah it's not just sex <coughs> porn is not just porn it's about all sorts of feelings feeling of um um you know if you watch something that you're ashamed about watching when you start thinking about why you're watching it and why that turns you on or why you gravitate towards it it relates to so many other parts of your life that were untouched or unexplored up until then um the beauty of introspection right exactly wow so do you find that your clients um is there an age difference about the openness like they are the younger ones better at introspecting or the older ones better at introspecting uh, hard to generalize but i think again thinking back to myself as a 15 year old mm. i look at a lot of the 15 year olds now and their knowledge base around mental health yeah their emotional vocabulary emotional intelligence is for the most part incredible yeah thanks to the internet yeah internet large part but i also think schools mm. schools now whether schools do it right you know whether they do it as a form of uh, i suppose just a tokenistic sort of uh, program or not most schools do mindfulness now mm. now with you, you as soon as you do mindfulness you're mm. talking about mental health yeah and it it blew my mind when i first started the clinic the amount of teenagers who came in and still do on their own terms mum mm. dad i want to see someone Mum and dad amazing. brings them in and uh, usually in the first session I'll get mum and or dad to sit in for the first half just like, okay, so why have you brought your son? And in these cases they go, I'm not sure, but we're happy to pay for it. He, he wants this outlet. This is a safe space for him. You know, he said he wants to come along. And that, that blew my mind because even wow. 10 years ago, I don't think that w- would be very common at all. And, and as you said, there's two factors contributing it to schools, but also social media there is so much body positivity gender diversity and inclusivity inclusivity <laughs> online and i see young kids now um that in schools are openly gay or trans i mean accepting and and expressing of their identities and it is amazing it makes me so happy to see that kids would feel safe enough to to do that these days yeah yeah do you so you see uh, do you see a lot of <coughs> I'll start again. Do you see a lot of young people or do you see a lot of older people or is there an even split? It's probably pretty even. Okay. Probably 40% of the clients I would see would be teenagers or guys in their early 20s. But yeah, across the lifespan, all the way up until probably 70s or 80s I've got a few clients. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are there any specific generational differences between millennials and gen z and the older people in terms of in mental health needs like what what are the what are the young people telling you are is scaring them these days probably the space they're in is it's so unique even even from when we were in that in that sort of age range i think with social media constant constant stimulation if you think of a 16 year old it's Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, mm. you know, playing Fortnite. Um, 
What is Fortnite? I've heard so much oh, about it. It's an online multiplayer game where right. there's 100 people in a world and you're playing against players from all over the world and it's a battle royal, last one standing. Basically. But they do the flossing dance in Fortnite, right? The players? Yes. When they win? Yes. Ah, yes, that's dance. where it's come from. Yeah. All right. Sorry, carry no, on. No, no, no. <laughs> so I think that one, that constant need to be stimulated, um, which presents a lot of different issues, then compounded with just all the normal shitty teenage emotions of mm. who am I, where do I fit in, the social issues, which can be, you know, terrible time for a lot of teens mm. but more broadly i th- at the moment there's so many options in terms of what people can do after school or if they drop out and go different ways that that is overwhelming mm. because a lot of parents who are the older generation still place this expectation that once you finish year 12 you'll know what you're going to do or you have an idea and I mean, most people, I know myself, even though I knew I sort of wanted to study psychology, I had no goddamn clue what I wanted to do. Most people don't. And even uni students in their early 20s, you know, have chopped and changed courses and they feel like they're getting left behind. And I mean, that ends up manifesting in a range of different mental health issues from anxiety to mm. resorting to substances. Mm. So I, I think I feel really, uh, I really feel for young people these days because I think the internet and social media can have a really positive impact as you touched on. Mm. But the more literature that emerges, the more it shows that there's a correlation between the amount of time spent on things like Instagram and Facebook and the prevalence of anxiety and depression. Yeah. Because on those mediums, you are, people are showing the highlight reel of their lives. Mm. And as human beings, you only, it's natural for us to compare. Mm. And, Yes, that aspect is true. And also, as you said, the constant need for stimulation. When I was a kid, I didn't have com- I didn't have phones. And if I was bored, I daydreamed or I read books or I played. But at the minute I got a smartphone, now if I have a minute free, which is all of us people in the world these days, immediately my phone comes out. It's like an automatic reflex. My phone comes out and I flip to Instagram. If there's nothing new on Instagram, I flip to Messenger. If there's nothing new there and I've absolutely run out of all of the apps, then I'll flip to the bloody weather app. But it's just the constant need for mental stimulation and entertainment. And I find myself sometimes when I'm anxious or depressed or not able to resolve whatever's going on in my mind, even it doesn't have to be as extreme as anxiety or depression, but just I have a busy mind at night. I put off going to sleep because I'm afraid of the quiet moment between when I put my phone down and my eyes close and when I finally fall asleep. And I often just stay on and I I often find myself wishing that I had a mental screen that I could control with my mind and watch movies or look at Instagram until I fall asleep without because my body is physically tired but my mind is rushing. Yeah. Don't worry, that technology's probably coming. Oh. <laughs> it no. probably is in 10 years. But yeah, well, I mean, what, you, what you're speaking of is so, so common again. It's that control, but also it's scary. It's scary to just be alone with your thoughts and feelings, which a lot of people these days, whether it be a teenager or a guy who's working crazy hours, that that's a terrifying thought. Yeah. But you and I probably had a childhood that was still not so highly distracted. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I didn't get a computer until I was 10 years old and I didn't get a phone until I was 
17 years old. Yeah. And in though I just read and I did what people do in the analog world. Well, what, apart apart from MSN Messenger and playing Snake on your Nokia 3310. Oh yeah. That was it, wasn't I, it? I was addicted to MSN Messenger. I, yeah. I indeed well, you'd was. rush home from school, jump yes. on MSN. And talk to the same people that you saw at school. Exactly. You hang out in that online space. Yeah, yeah. Hang, stay up until three in the morning just chatting on MSN Messenger. Yeah. Making random friends around the world and talking to them. And it's scary though, I think. The idea that we we, we have integrated with technology to the point now where 90% of the time we have a computer and access to the World Wide Web in our pocket mm. and we are two seconds away from just numbing out, so to speak, on that social media feed. That's a really scary thought. Yeah. And that's why just being still and sitting there with no stimulation is really hard for a lot of people. We're all guilty of pulling out the phone when we're stressed or just want to want to escape briefly. Mm. Mm. I mean, nothing can be worse than being without Wi-Fi or a mobile signal. <laughs> I mean, that's like hell. Um, but so I want to come back to an idea that you talked about before that so many options for what they want to do after they leave school or when they grow up is something that is really concerning young men. I've talked about this idea before on the podcast that and I heard it from Esther Perel, uh, who is a renowned psychologist and um, sex therapist, that we have a burden now of creating our own identities. Our identities aren't dictated necessarily anymore by where we were born or what our parents do. But people have more access to become whoever they want or chase their dreams. So the, it's it's a freedom, but it's also a huge burden because you got to know what you want. And there is this generational gap where parents don't understand that young people do a whole bunch of things before settling on one or maybe they never settle on one and I guess there's that pressure on kids to know what they want from the parents but also not know what they want because there's so many options available for them am I making sense yeah yeah well it's (laughs) it's a fine line isn't it between finding something you're comfortable with but it's also acceptable and meets the expectations of your parents. That's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. But is that affecting, in your practice and your experience, is that affecting Gen Y and Gen Z more? I would say so. In my personal experience, yes. Mm. Because it's not as straightforward as it used to be. It mm. used to be go to university, go to TAFE, get a good job, you've got a good job, now put up with it. Mm. But that yeah, That's the start and the end of it mm. until you retire. But now with, with the newer generations you might have two, three, four different careers. That's that's evident. And with the explosion of things like social media and the internet, it's so much easier to, as you said, create your own identity, create your own business, create your own path. So these non-traditional sort of routes of going down a professional, uh, I suppose, uh, path to registration as a professional, whatever that might be, there's so many other options. But the, the they're uncertain, which is the hard part. But is it like, what if I uh, choose not to go to uni and instead I do this thing, then will I be worse off or will that be a bad decision? Is that the the main anxiety there? At times, I think that can be really crippling, but it's also I get a lot of guys in the early 20s, even mid-20s who have chopped and changed two or three times Mm. or they've just graduated and realized I've got a hex debt of 30, 40 grand. I don't want to do this. Yeah. So dealing not only with that inner conflict and that disappointment and, again, that story that your mind tells yourself, mm. 
but also the disappointment of the parents and knowing that oh, if I go back to uni, if I change my course again, there's going to be tension there. They'll be disappointed with, in me in the short term and all of those different thoughts. Yeah. Do you have clients that are finding it hard to fit in in the corporate nine to five kind of role and they're feeling frustrated that why can't I concentrate on keeping a job down? Um, okay, let me qualify that a bit more. So for me personally, I find it really hard to to work um, in a more traditional work model. My brain goes to a million places at once and I feel scared and frustrated that am I abnormal? Am I going to be, am I a loser because I just can't do that kind of work? And on, on the other hand, I really want to be, you know, be a really cool writer, screenwriter, whatever. I, I want to chase my dreams. And there is a real disconnect between the reality of earning a living by doing maybe a job you don't like, but chasing your dreams because that's what's expected of our generation. You know what you want to do. You do what you love and you just go after it. Yeah, find your passion. Find your passion. But that's not realistic and it causes me a lot of anxiety. Mm. And is that also the same for the men that come to to see you? To a large degree. Yeah. Sadly, a lot of the blokes I see, I call it, they've, they've, I often refer to it as they've been caught on that treadmill of life, which kids, family, mortgage, the cars, the schools, all of this comes along and they end up stuck, they end up trapped because they need to maintain a certain level of lifestyle in terms of financial income to maintain all of that. If you have a bloke who realizes he doesn't like his job and he's doing the traditional nine to five, in most cases it's more like eight to six, eight to seven, plus some weekend work, what choice does he have? Yeah. So on one hand for that, the younger blokes who are thinking, oh, I can't do this, I don't wanna do this, often what I say to them, this is awesome. To be having these discussions and these insights and these realizations now, that's that's unreal mm-hmm. because you don't want to get 10, 20 years down the track and realize that you are literally stuck. You're mm. literally trapped. And you, you mentioned there that, that sort of inner conflict between not feeling particularly comfortable in the traditional nine to five in an office. I'm not saying that no one is or can enjoy a role in that nine to five in an office all day, every day. There's a lot of people who enjoy their job and that's the environment they work in. But as human beings, we're not built for that. We were not built to be cooped up in an office nine to five working in front of a screen. That's not, again, getting back to our those core needs that we have as human beings, as, as advanced monkeys. Mm. That doesn't address those. Mm-hmm. And so if you are in a job like that, you need to make even more of an effort to connect socially, to take care of your physical health, to get regular exercise, to make sure nutrition's on point, to get your hydration, all of those different things. Because if you don't, you're only, it's only a matter of time before pathology sets in, whether it be physical or mental. But this awareness was really not there in previous generations. You, for example, if you're a dad, you just go to work and you earn money for your kids. And you don't really think about yourself or your needs or your health because that's kind of selfish, right? As a parent, your priority is your family and your children. Yeah, well, that's the story previous generations were told, wasn't it? Especially for men, your primary purpose is to provide. Mm. You provide. Mm. And if that means putting up with a job you don't like, a boss you you hate, uh, any of those sort of things, you just put up with it. You get on with it. She'll be right. Mm. Wow, that's really damaging. And I think that 
for younger men now, as for women, there is more of an option that you know that maybe that's how your parents turned out and you don't want to be like that. You want to have the freedom to explore yourself as a human or do what really pleases you. As Marie Kondo says, keep what sparks joy and toss what doesn't in your life. Uh, and maybe that means that you won't have that traditional life trajectory of leave school, get into a trade or go to university and get into a profession, have get married, have children and just keep going at a steady pace yeah. in that in that script. Um, and I think that that causes a lot of anxiety because you know you really don't want it. But there's this fear that what if I get to my 30s or 40s and I miss that? What if I chased my dreams and tried to, you know, focus on self-actualization and I missed out on this really important human thing of being tied down into a family, mm. in, into, you know, children and domesticity? Um, do you have any young men that are expressing that fear of um, like the, the generational difference in expectations? In terms of the occupation and the role yeah. of the male. Yeah, and, and the role of a person now in like being true to yourself before you're, tr you know, before you're fulfilling social expectations, you're fulfilling your own. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Probably men in their 30s are sort of caught in that gray area, mm -hmm. similar to myself, where they, they might have realized this, they might have known about this, but the guy's older than them. Unfortunately, it's really sad to say, but it is sometimes too late for them because they, they are trapped. Um, the amount of guys I have who say the same thing, that I feel like I've been living the last 10, 20 years how other people told me I should live. Mm. I've just done what seemed like the right thing. It seemed like the right thing at the time to have kids. It seemed like the right thing at the time to take that promotion because that's what society encourages. But it doesn't lead to fulfillment or having a meaningful life, mm. oftentimes. Mm. That's profound, and that's such a scary thing to imagine that any of us could have that kind of moment uh, in the future of regret. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we spend so much time now. Maybe I don't know if older generations thought much about regret, but our generation and the younger one thinks a lot about this idea that by the time I die, I don't want to have any regrets. I want to do everything that my mind and my heart wants. YOLO culture. Huh? YOLO culture, that's <laughs> right. Um, and so it's especially scary for us to imagine that we could be like that and look back and go, I never took the time to do what I really wanted. Yeah, a bloke said to me a while ago, I think it was a client, it, could, it might not have been, but somebody said to me, and it always stuck with me, we spend more time planning our holidays than we do our lives. Yeah. And it's so true. If you, if you plan a holiday, you're talking about what tours you're going on, what accommodation, are you going to travel with, all of this. How often do we actually sit down and go, where do I want to be? Not necessarily professionally or financially, but what do I want in five years? Mm. You know, what do I want my life to be about? Who do I want to be in this world? And how do I get there? Mm. It's very rare, very rare. Mm. And that's why people end up in these situations where they're going, I'm so anxious, I'm so distressed, I'm so overwhelmed because they've lived a life that was laid out for them and seemed like the best thing, mm. but it wasn't really purposeful. Mm. So in terms of young men now, um, for them to find a purposeful life, 
they need to start talking and communicating more with their with people around them and expressing their inner needs, right? So you you we've got schools in which they you know they've got um, counselors and they've got mindfulness activities for children, but people also need to explore their identities and their peer groups with each other. How can young boys start in a not awkward way? Start talking about their feelings and their desires with their friends. What's a way like? You can't just suddenly, you know, if you're a particularly sensitive kid and your friends are not so sensitive and you get, you know, made fun of by them, you you need to stick to your guns and start introducing the communication culture in your friend's circle. What's a not awkward way to do it? That's a tough one. I mean, I think the first thing is you have to find your tribe. Mm. I speak to a lot of teenagers about this, that a lot of the time we all as teenagers get caught up in hanging around people who... Deep down, we probably don't know why we're hanging around them. We just get caught up in that sheep mentality. Mm. But I mean, once you've found that tribe, there's a lot of advocacy around, you know, are you okay day? Speak Mm. up if things aren't okay, which is fantastic. Not knocking that at all. But I think it starts a lot earlier than that because that almost implies that we need to start speaking when things aren't good. Mm. No, but we need to speak full stop Mm. when things are great. We need to be expressing that and encourage that when things aren't so great, when things are going just okay. If you start having those conversations just generally, not about, you know, deep, dark feelings, but just how things are going, then when shit does hit the fan, it's a lot easier to open that line of communication. Mm. So the onus is really on adults, on parents, on schools to start encouraging younger children to use words to express feelings, complex feelings, and teach words for complex feelings. Well, and also role model that behavior. Mm. There's nothing worse than having a client brought in. I've got an angry son. He's, he's, you know, he's not talking about how he's feeling or what's going on for him. But nine times out of ten, dad's not doing that. Mm. You know, what, what's dad's role in this mm. it's, it's all well and good to say boys need to do this men need to do this but we need to start role modeling this and I guess for dads as well if there's any dads that are listening at some point if, if it's clicked in your mind that you need to start doing this with your kids how do you overcome the fear that it's too late like how do you start how do you just do you just wake up one day and go right I'm going to start becoming a better communicator today Bring everyone in. I'm going to start the communication. Let's have a family meeting. That's a terrifying thought for a oh lot of blokes, God. for a lot of dads. Well, I, I mean, a lot of what I speak to blokes about, the amount of referrals I get, I need to learn how to communicate better with my partner. Mm. And you unpack, what does that actually mean? Mm. And what they're saying is, I don't know how to listen effectively and mindfully. I don't know how to deepen my connection with my partner. So... For going back to your question, dads, if they're in a relationship, asking your partner, how do I communicate with the kids better? How do I demonstrate vulnerability? How do I role model self-care? One of the things I try and get most dads I'm seeing to do if they have kids who are above, say, eight or ten, are you telling your kids that you're coming to see me? And they go, oh, no. So why why not? Wow. Why are you not having that conversation? And that sort of clicks with them. They go, ah. Oh. I said, well, they're about to enter one of the hardest periods of life, their teenage years, their adolescence. You want them to feel comfortable talking about these things and knowing they could reach out. So encouraging them to have that discussion like, yeah, dad's going through a few issues and 
however they want to word it or articulate it, but just communicating that, opening that communication channel. That's so powerful. That is vulnerability, yeah. right? Not just crying in front of your children, but seeking help, acknowledging that you don't know all of the answers, acknowledging that you're a human that's making mistakes and is also fumbling through life, mm. um, but that you're trying your best. Yeah. What? How do you? Um, how do you encourage your clients to express vulnerability? Start small. Okay. Start small because as soon as you say that, a lot of men think it's about getting your best mate, going to a pub or going out for dinner and just having a DNA, mm. which for a lot of guys is terrifying. Mm. Um, so it's starting small. It's when when your mates are asking you how how things been, actually telling them. Not just, oh, yeah, good, mate. How you been? Mm. No, no, actually tell them how things been. And starting small because what a lot of guys realize too is once you start demonstrating vulnerability with those close to you, those close friends, then they'll feel more comfortable. Mm. And that strengthens trust. Now, with strengthened trust, you have a deeper connection and friendship, and it sort of snowballs. A lot of guys I see, especially 30, 35 plus, they're really lonely. They don't actually have friends because they've neglected their own self-care, their own friendships, again, to provide. They've got to work more, got to spend time with their family. Their identity is made up of work and family. And they say, I want to deepen that relationship with friends. You can have a 10-year relationship with a mate and just keep it surface level and talk about the golf and the footy. Mm and you're not going to feel that close to them. Mm. Whereas you can have a six-month relationship with somebody. And if you start demonstrating vulnerability and they replicate that, you can have a really flourishing, deep friendship with that person. Mm. So starting small, starting really small. Why are men's friendships with each other often posed in opposition to their respons- men's responsibilities to their families? Like This is a classic trope in movies or on TV or just in general, like the wife is angry that the husband's taken Saturday off to go and play golf with his buddies. Um, or, you know, it's like, if you're going to have a boy's night, then I'm going to have a girl's night. Um, this constant opposition of the, why is there? Uh, yeah, that's my question. Why are men's friendships with each other looked upon as some sort of escapism from the responsibilities of the world? I'd say two things. I don't think we prioritize them. Mm. As society, as men either, we don't prioritize them, which is fair enough. I can understand how when you're under financial pressure, when you're trying to provide for a family, especially a young family, that's your number one priority. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is in order to maintain that lifestyle and be the best father and partner you can be, you need good well-being. Mm. Friendships contribute to that well-being. Yeah. So it's just as important. Mm. Um, so we don't prioritize them, but men also don't understand that. Mm. The amount of guys I'll talk to about, you need to reconnect with friends, and it takes three or four sessions for them to actually realize, like, yeah, I actually do. Mm. Like, to have a genuine conversation with a mate, that's so powerful. Yeah, because as people, we can't expect the one person in our romantic partnership to be our everything. No. We need a healthy circle of emotional expression so we need people outside of a partnership or a family to whom we also express our feelings and i think that we need to encourage everyone if it's a hetero relationship the man and the woman 
should both have their own friend circles with whom they go and talk and with they, uh, that's a part of their emotional hygiene and these are all important relationships it's not like your husband and his friends are just dumbasses that suck up important valuable time that could be spent because your husband's neglecting his family duties but if there's a culture in the family of all of us whoever's in the family mom dad the children have their friends and that's an essential part of their well-being to go out and connect with their friends and come back to the family unit that would be so powerful i think in keeping families healthier yeah i suppose the second thing in terms of that idea of oh you're going out and having a boys night to run, run a mark so to speak mm. that stems from i suppose those destructive behaviors men often engage in when they socialize you mm. know the, the traditional boys night out where you're rocking at 4 30 in the morning that look if that's what you want to do with your time, fair enough. But that can't be your only form of socialising. Yeah. The other thing too, though, is I question in a lot of those instances if if the wife or the partner is saying, oh, I don't want you going out with your mates, then that husband or that father probably isn't doing all they can to be present with the family during the week. Mm. You know, are they, are they spending you know uninterrupted time with the kids, with their partner, mm. to ensure that uh, they're doing the best they can? Probably not. Interesting. Just, just quickly, I feel I, I should mention this too because it's not something we've touched on, but in terms of that idea of friendships and neglecting your own mental health and self-care, this, this idea of postnatal depression for men mm-hmm. is something that I believe and a lot of other people in the space mm-hmm. also believe it's one of the most underdiagnosed issues for men. Right, I can imagine. Because all of a sudden, your whole life has been taken over by another creature's needs it's scary isn't it well and that idea of the men the man or the male in in the picture being the provider Mm. and being the rock there's no time that is expected more than when the female is at her most vulnerable of being pregnant and giving birth and having just given birth where often i speak to because i get a lot of referrals from men who have experienced postnatal i don't want to say depression but just issues declining mental health there might be substance abuse anxiety depression the whirlwind and you explain this to the partner and you say well if he had turned around two weeks after the baby was born and said honey i'm really struggling what would you have said and most of them (laughs) pretty much say yeah at the time i probably would have told him to uh you know get stuffed Mm. and that's really rough for men because if you think about how a man identifies with himself how he constructs his identity mm. as soon as a baby's in the picture that changes everything mm. and if they don't find that common thread from their identity before becoming a dad to post becoming a dad they often you know, the amount of guys in this space who come in and say I, I was driving to work and i just thought to myself is this it like is this what i do now i, I don't sleep much i still have to work full-time come home, support my wife. Like, is this it? Is this what I've worked so hard for all my life? Yeah, that's so important. The common thread of their identity. Who are they outside of their relationship with their wife and their child? That's required for sanity. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yes, a woman has just given birth to a child and both mother and child are very vulnerable and their health needs to be taken care of. But also the partner in this 
needs care too. All of us need care when there's a stressful situation going on. Mm. I was listening one of my favorite podcasts is Armchair Expert podcast uh by Dax Shepherd. Oh yes, I've recently got into It is podcasts. amazing. Yeah. It is such a good podcast. But Dax has often talked about how when so he's an addict in recovery. Mm. And when he had children, he often felt um after the birth of the child the pressure to start using again because he felt lonely and unseen and his emotional needs were not being met because everything was about the mother and the child and there was no circle around him to take care of his rising panic or his anxieties about the changing family and his changing role well that's it, it takes a back seat for the male doesn't it which yeah. is understandable but that's another further compounds the issue so men it's not selfish to go and seek help from a psychologist or seek help from your friend circle even if it is somebody else in your family that is you know in a delicate condition but you also matter right yeah and also understand that it's so normal to experience these emotions yeah you know men's most of the guys with these postnatal issues that i see spend a year or two before they reach out for help because they feel like no 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 i, I don't have the right to reach out at this point mm. There's a lot of dad groups. Dad Groups Australia is popping up, becoming really, really big. Oh, wow. And I encourage a lot of new dads or expecting dads, join join up mm-hmm. because you're going to be talking about common experiences, lived experiences with other blokes who are going through the same things as you, who are two steps ahead of you, and you'll realize this is so, so normal. Mm. And also not talking about these is going to not just affect your relationship with your partner but also your child. That first year when you're not even resolved your own issues – how are you going to figure out what you mean to the child and what the child means to you and what it's going to the roadmap for what it's going to look like ahead right i have um and and that breeds resentment because i mean i know of of couples where maybe the 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 husband didn't want a child but they became pregnant and they had it and the husband maybe took a back seat in emotionally reaching out and caring for the child it was like yeah i i i conceptually love you and the child but this is something that's happened to you and i'm just going to be here doing my limited role and have hasn't emotionally engaged with the child enough because they're just overwhelmed yeah. at the change that has suddenly happened in their life uh or often dads just become the providers of money and good times and the fun parent <laughs> and moms become the hard working parent that does the emotional labor because dads haven't probably given you know worked on themselves enough to and also going back to what we said before that people plan their holidays more than they plan their lives mm. having a chat with your your partner hang on how do we want to parent mm. how are we going to work together here because it's new yes there's innate sort of uh i suppose ways in which we parent but you need to figure out how you're going to come together as a team and parent together because you're you're a product of your own parenting and own environment and mm. oftentimes they're very very different. Yeah. Men aren't really given the role of nurturers, are they? No, unfortunately not. No. Men aren't really asked for inputs on how to parent. It's always mom knows best. Moms are just but I'm sure that men have valid thoughts and feelings about how they want their children to be raised and all aspects of their child's life and well-being they think about it mm, but to a large degree i would argue that in most cases the men's i suppose opinion on that mm. is not as valued mm. 
Well, it gets back to that traditional uh, role, doesn't it? Yeah. The, the female is the nurturer, the male is the provider. Often I think men find their role of nurturer as they become grandparents probably. Yeah. As a grandfather when you're not hands-on actively parenting and then you allow yourself to just be emotionally involved with the grandkid because you don't have to take care of its upbringing in other ways. Well, and you've also got less, uh, I suppose, other things to worry about, yeah. other priorities. The other, the other thing that further compounds new dad's mental health issues is if there's other things already lingering, mm. what a lot of guys will comment on is, you know, they've never been comfortable within themselves or how they fit in with the world or anything like that. And now they have this baby looking at them and they know in the back of their mind that in three, four years, this kid's going to be walking around, talking and looking at me as the dad for guidance and how to act in the world and how to be a man if it's a son. That terrifies a lot of guys because a lot of guys say, I don't know how to be a man. (laughs) What does it mean to be a man in today's society? What's okay? What's not okay? And that raises a whole, whole uh, list of issues for guys which can manifest in a lot of different ways. So what does it mean to be a man in oh, today's dear. society? <laughs> it's a whole, a whole other podcast. <laughs> I think it's a grey area, though. It is a really grey area in terms of what, what is acceptable forms of masculinity these days and what isn't, uh, which a lot of guys, again, they, they just internalise and avoid because they're scared of being called out as toxic or as uh, misogynists. Are you worried about this changing conversation around masculinity? Is it? Do you think it's... For you personally, is it scary? For me personally, no, because I'm you know I live and breathe it most days. Mm. But I think it's a good thing. But just I mean, even mentioning but when I when I featured on the the drum with the ABC a while ago, one of my co-panelists encouraged me beforehand. He said, "Don't mention toxic masculinity." I said, "Oh, why is that?" He said, "As soon as you mention that, people on the outskirts are already going to make preconceived ideas about your beliefs and what you're talking about. They won't listen." I still mentioned it, but I think just that idea that a lot of men feel threatened mm. as soon as you mention toxic masculinity or these ideas. So naming it, the, 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 when you say the word toxic masculinity, rather than just describing the action, suppose you described all of those things without using the words toxic masculinity, yeah. it might be received better. I think so. and I think it's a valid point. I mm. think it is because a lot of, a lot of guys feel victimized and I suppose attacked when yeah. you mention toxic masculinity because yeah. their immediate reaction is oh, you're some feminist or some lefty corn masculinity bad. Mm. I have been on numerous dates with men. Um, I, 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 I date men. So I've been on numerous dates with men who have felt offended and they tell me, oh, these feminists, oh, they think all men are crap. And they just so closed off to the idea of um, of listening to a feminist message because they feel scared that they are being negated. Yeah. Um, I I understand that. I mean, I I don't think that's the truth, and I don't. I always end up arguing anyway. But <laughs> I, I understand that fear uh, when when because I as a woman, when men start going, for example, if somebody says to me, "You're not like other girls," or "You're not like other women." I go, what the hell does that mean? So I can completely understand how scary it is for for a man to be faced with these new words like patriarchy, toxic masculinity, you know, and it's all feels like an attack on them. Yeah. So how can if if a man is 
in an interaction with somebody and this comes up, how can they calm the anxiety? What should, how can they be better at listening to these words? That's a tough question. Uh, I encourage a lot of guys, whether it be mates or clients, to put their to notice their judgment and put that to the side and try and listen to whatever the person is trying to say. They might not necessarily agree, mm. but just trying to be open minded and try and what is the message that that person is trying to talk about when it's talk when they're discussing masculinity or the the uh, self sabotaging nature of some parts of masculinity or whatever it mm. is. And it doesn't have to be an attack on you. So Dax Shepard, again, in Armchair Expert Podcast, explained privilege mm. so well. He said, when you acknowledge your privilege, it doesn't mean you're a bad person that doesn't deserve what you have or who hasn't worked hard for what you have. It just means that some aspect of your identity um, is is something that you'll never have to worry about overcoming, which somebody else does. But that doesn't take away your own hard work. So, you know, even for men, it's like you have male privilege. That doesn't mean that you individually as a man who's hearing these words are a bad person that has abused people personally. Mm. It means that you just have to be aware that that's something that you'll never have to worry about. Your gender or your sex is something you'll never have to worry about or you won't have to worry about as much as a woman might. But... It doesn't, but, even, but even some blokes hearing that would say, well, that's bullshit because yeah. I have A, B, C, D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I completely agree with you, but yeah. it's such a sensitive topic. It is. I mean, around, around the height of the Me Too movement, mm. probably when I first opened my practice, it was really interesting. I had a few blokes who felt so... And this is not saying the Me Too movement was a bad thing. I think mm. it's a great thing. The domestic violence rates in Australia are horrendous. Mm. But... A lot of the blokes I was seeing felt so unsure of what it f of of themselves as a man and their identity in terms of masculinity at the time that it affected the way in which they functioned in their social circles and workplaces. Right? How so? Well, one bloke in particular, he worked in middle management in an organisation, and I mean I've told this story many times, and he had a colleague in her mid twenties who was obviously struggling that day in her role now my client wasn't her direct line manager but her direct line manager was away and he he told the story of how internally he he was tempted and and felt obliged to say come into my office let, let's sort it out and whatnot what's what's going on um you know i'll support you in this but then he had this thought of People are going to think that I'm the sick old man bringing the 20-something-year-old girl into my office, so I didn't bother. Mm. And the same bloke talked about being at his daughter's netball and having this just brief moment of realization going, I'm one of two men here and I don't know many people. I'm sure somebody here has probably thought, I'm just here perving on young women. Mm. You know, another bloke's talk about, I've got 12-year-old girls and their friends come over and at night time, we'll walk them back to their house. But I would never do that. Yeah, as the male, just because. Mm. I don't want people asking questions of me. Mm. And that's a really hard thing to grasp. That's yeah. that's not a result of the Me Too movement. It's not blaming any of that. But I think there is a point to be said by... It's similar to politics. The left or the right often is not to blame. It's the extremists on both ends. Yeah. And there are extreme... You know, there are extreme mass 
masculine, what would you call them? Ex- yeah. Masculine movements, I mm. suppose. There are extremes there who all feminism is bad. By the same token, there is some extreme feminists yeah. who are very extreme in their messaging. Mm. And I think that's when men hear that, they they generalize all of feminism with that extreme message. That extreme message. Uh, I f- really feel about this particular issue that men are more prone to being seen as predators than women. I mean, I, I don't know the statistics, but it's probably that generally more of assaults or violence or any sort of um, harmful behaviors are carried out by men in the world. But also, it's it's a real trust exercise for for people in today's day and age to, you know, um, not see men as somebody who hurt them or it's especially now in the Me Too movement where everything's become heightened the intentions of men the you know the carnal nature of men or whatever all of these things are coming into a spotlight and I completely understand how scary and lonely it must be it must be to feel like you're not valid or that you're somehow a wrong creature in this world Mm. and I personally feel really bad that um, like the guy in the netball practice looking at children playing would feel like, are people thinking I'm a predator? Um, because, yeah, we're not used to seeing men as nurturers. And if anything, if the Me Too movement can um, help in men's health and mental well-being, it's this, that more acceptance of men as nurturers, more encouragement for men to speak about feelings and um and and express their human emotions and rather than following a script a very limited script will help all of us better let's hope so yeah yeah but i i really do think it is unfair and i um and i that that person your client who expressed these things that was really brave of him i think to come in and talk about these fears and be aware of of the power structures yeah. yeah, I mean that that discussion started because he talked about how at the time we were having the the vote for gay marriage, and he said himself, he goes, "I'm not homophobic, but I voted against it." He said, mm-hmm. "But we talk a lot about, and this is a separate issue, I suppose." But he said, "We talk a lot about being open to your opinion and open to express it, and people agreeing to disagree." And he talked in his social circle, um, predominantly other couples, about how he voted against it. And he said, people just ripped shreds through me. Just absolute tore shreds through me. And he said, by the same token, he expressed some opinions about sort of some of these extreme feminist ideas. Again, people tore shreds through him. So that's a really, I mean, really delicate space. Really yeah, delicate we don't space. have much tolerance for civility. Uh, I mean, we don't have much civility these days in, in listening to other people's opinions that differ from ours. No. Yeah. So gay, uh, the gay marriage... Um, is a segue into my next point, which is homophobia uh, in men and homophobia around physical, non-sexual physical intimacy in male relationships. Non-physical, sexual, yep. Non-sexual physical intimacy. Okay, yeah, I'm with you. So women are very used to hugging each other, I mean, friends who are, say, girls, young girls or women even, hugging each other, kissing, um, you know, or cuddling or just have sharing a physical space for comfort and affection. 
Whereas that's not very common for men, even now in 2019, two friends, um, male friends, let's assume they're cishet, they are not going to cuddle each other or hold hands or whatever because that's like immediately, oh my God, are we gay? <laughs> um, and also parents, like I think that um, women continue to be physically um show physical affection to their parents and their adult siblings. Whereas I don't know if men continue doing that except for a, a hug or a pat on the back or, you know. So why, um, how does not having physical, non-sexual physical intimacy and, and non-sexual touch with other men affect men's mental health? Does that ever come up in your practice? I'm trying to think. Not specifically. I haven't come across it specifically. I mean, like in a personal perspective, it has a lot. Um, I think I think it's always bizarre, especially in Australian culture, that on the footy field it's acceptable to hug, cry, and smack another guy's ass. But as soon as you get off the realm of the footy field, don't touch me. Yeah. So you personally, when you were growing up, did you have any friends, like best friends, who were boys? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, probably 50-50 split. Yeah. yeah, and did you ever, when you were hanging out with, say, your best friend who's a, who's a guy and you were feeling sad, did you ever just really want to hug him and hold him or if the, he was sad or you were sad or, you know? No, I think that would have been a big no-no. But you never felt, like, oh, would deprived like... of that? Like, you never felt like, uh, you know, do, do men feel deprived of physical touch? I think they do. I yeah. think to a large degree... Uh, I'm just trying to think about me and my mates. I mean, the man hug is getting a lot more common and a lot more acceptable. Mm. Um, but I think especially still in Australian culture, it's still so noticeable about physical touch. Yeah. Um, I've got a good friend who is Indian, for example, and whenever we go out for lunch or whatnot, you know, he'll put his arm around me or you know, a few times he's just held my hand. And I've been to India and understand where that comes from. Yeah. But even the first time he did that, I was like, what, what, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, okay, that's all right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there, is a, there is a tradition of uh, platonic hand-holding and um, linking arms or putting your arm across your friend's shoulder among boys yeah. and men in India. It's really interesting to see because in the West, that would be like, no way. Nope. Am I going to be caught dead holding my best friend's hand if I'm a boy and he's a boy? <laughs> That's just bizarre in, in our um, culture. But my dad grew up uh, and it was nothing for him to you know, young, even teenage boys hanging out, walking with hold, holding hands yeah, or sitting across each other and just, you know, having your arm across somebody's shoulder. Oh, it's a beautiful thing too. It's a I beautiful so. thing to witness. Because I, I know when we used to, well, I used to work with a lot of cold communities and asylum seekers, refugees, you'd see Sri Lankans um, and all different cultures come in and they'll be holding hands, two blokes. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. Men need physical touch as much as anyone else, right? Well, they do. They do. Well, one thing often, uh, and my partner will attest to this, um, but I'll say to a lot of guys is one of the biggest complaints amongst wives is no affection. Mm. And when you look at the science of hugging, now hugging releases a chemical called oxytocin, which is the bonding chemical. That's the chemical that's released um, when a baby has the skin-on-skin contact with their mother. It creates a bond and attachment, and that's why they encourage it. If you have a 20 or 30-second hug upon greeting someone, 
you feel better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's neurochemically, it's shown. And encouraging guys even just to do that with their partner. And they go, what, I'm just going to hug her for 20, 30 seconds when it's I get home. Time. And I say, yeah, I'll say, actually do it for the next two weeks. And yeah. then you come back and tell me. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. 99% of the time, I had it this week, a guy came in, he said, yeah, it feels amazing. Mm. He goes, I feel less stressed. My wife's like over the moon and we just feel more connected. Yeah, wow. So I'm trying to imagine if boys started doing this with each other, right? Mm. Prolonged hugs. Now, because of our conditioning of physical touch and sexual touch being mixed up, there's bound to be a few half boners or whatever, or you're bound <laughs> to be aroused. Like you're like, sometimes, you know, you don't know what arouses you, but if you just stay with it, maybe let's, let's experiment. Just try hugging your friend and stay with it for 20 seconds. If it's awkward, just deal with the awkwardness mm. and maybe see how that makes you feel afterwards, right? Potentially. <laughs> Potentially. Would you try that personally? Uh, I even I think that would be pretty awkward with my friends. But, I mean, we hug. Most of us hug. Yeah. So even for most blokes, just starting with hugging, you know, transition from the handshake to a hug yeah. or a bit of a man slap. A man, man what's slap a man on the, slap? You know, on the shoulder, just like the oh, sorry, right, right, distant right. the distant. Oh, hug. yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or, you know, these days they have, well, not these days, it's been going on for a long time, but there's these elaborate dapping procedures, yeah. uh, which is, I think, just an excuse to really connect physically with your friend and, you know, be there and have a a ritual, a secret ritual between yourself or some sort of expression of kinship physically. Well, it's almost like men need to be indirect with these things. Yeah. It's like you don't call up a mate very often and say, hey, let's just catch up. They go, to do what? Mm. So it's the same sort of thing. Instead of just giving us a hug, let's create this crazy handshake hug ritual thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or let's catch up and do something. Let's catch up and do an activity. Oh, always. Just catching up and sitting around and just drinking coffee. No, it's like, or or let's drink beer and dull our senses and loosen our inhibitions. And then maybe we can start talking. Yeah, get the beer blanket on. (laughs) Interesting. Um, Speaking of... um, no, I don't have a segue for that. I'm just going to put a break there and cut to the next part. I was going to say, where are you going with the I beer blanket? <laughs> um, I want to talk about mental illness. Are there differences in, in the way common mental illnesses like anxiety or depression present in men versus women? The primary difference generally in terms of the literature, but also in terms of what I've experienced in my professional career would be Women often will talk a lot more about the emotional aspects. Mm. Now, why is that? Probably they've got better insight into that. They've got more emotional uh, vocabulary, but they're more uh, aware of those sort of things. Men will often talk about their behavioral implications. Mm-hmm. I can't get out of bed. I can't do my job. I can't maintain concentration. So it manifests in different ways in that regard. A lot of guys will come in talking about one thing I'll ask them, have you ever experienced anxiety, depression in your life in the last six months? They'll say, I don't know. Mm. What is that? Mm. Whereas I think women are a lot more attuned to their emotions and what is going on for them. Mm. But there's cultural factors there as well. So um, in a culture in which it is more expected of a man to be reticent or perhaps it's more acceptable for a man to be violent and that's okay, they're a mental illness might go undiagnosed for a longer time because people haven't picked up that this is not normal behavior. Oh, definitely. Well, I mean, that's in terms of coping mechanisms, isn't right. it? Because a, a, 
female again generalizing but a female may feel more inclined or comfortable to have a chat with their friends their family about what's going on for them that's traditionally not acceptable as a bloke to get your mates around and go hey, i'm really struggling with this what is acceptable is forms of physical violence oh, i've gotten a bit of a punch on uh oh, smashed the beers you know i did some coke uh you know i'm gambling mm. that's acceptable mm. you know, amongst male circles especially amongst sporting clubs it's been very interesting this year I've gone back to play uh, soccer team sport again for the first time in five six years I used to play from a young age but I had five six years off and just being in that environment again in terms of masculinity what's socially acceptable what's not fascinating absolutely fascinating in terms of coping mechanisms and what they accept just because we're men and what they don't so gambling Drinking, violence, violence. Yeah, is it friendly violence or like full-on violence, like punching? Yeah, I'd say a bit of both. Wow. Okay. But I mean, there's that, there's that roughhousing. Mm. They call it. You know how mates often will play fight, which mm. is a, a, a way to bond, I suppose. Mm. But it's not uncommon, whether it be on the sporting fields, whether it be footy, soccer, whatever it is, or on a night out, that I oh, got into a bit of a punch on, bit of a bit of a biff, and that's acceptable. That's more, which is really crazy when you think about it. That's more acceptable than actually saying to your mates, hey, I'm really struggling. Yeah. So if you're somebody that knows um, a man that's using, resorting to violence a lot and, and, and that's just being passed off as acceptable or resorting to stoic silences and grunts to express emotions and that's just passed off as acceptable, then, then you, you see the, you should pick up on those as signs of needing mental health help i would say in most instances to some degree yes maybe not mental health help yeah. maybe it's opening that conversation yeah do you recommend that just like people go to the doctor and the dentist for checkups everybody should kind of you know once at least in their life go if they're struggling or feeling in a, at a low point in life rather than just saying this will get over just maybe go for like a mental health checkup Definitely. I think before they get to that point, I think every one thing people have to realize is we all have baggage. We all have our shit. Mm. Everybody can benefit from therapy. Mm. And even if things are going relatively well, you've probably got one or two things in the back of your mind that's either lingering or you thought, oh, at one point in your life, maybe I should sort help for that. Mm. Even just reaching out to a mental health clinician of some description to know that you've got that relationship there when and if you need it. Same with a GP. Now, men are crap at doing that with GPs. They're getting better. Mm. A lot of the teenagers I see, they're not coming in in crisis. They're not coming because there's something acute going on. Mm. They come in because they've had a few struggles. Their okay. parents want them to develop a relationship with that clinician so that when and if they need support, they've got that person. That's fantastic. Is there a difference in the younger, pe- younger men and boys from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds who come to see you? I don't get a lot of younger guys from cold communities, so to speak. I mean, what I can about s- older guys? Yeah, yeah, I get a fair few older guys. Um, I mean, that cultural aspect of things is huge, and we spend a lot of time sort of unpacking that with some clients in terms of the vi- environmental impacts versus the cultural impact of expectations coming to australia that transition i mean there's so many different factors Mm. that that contribute to who they are as a person Mm. their experiences their expectations on themselves 
So, yeah, I mean, the cultural impact is huge. Yeah. Huge. And I know that stigmas are very affected by cultures and ethnicities as well. Mm. So, like I was telling you before, in the Indian community, there is a real stigma around going and seeking help. Um, and as especially for, um, if you're a, um, a migrant community and everyone kind of knows everyone else, there might be even more of an embarrassment factor around that. Um, and I think that just communities need to start talking about mental health a lot more. And I think maybe kids could drive that in their parents. Um, kids could say that this is how I'm feeling and start sharing and persevere in the face of being shut down by their parents, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think I think maybe a, a lot of um, migrant kids might agree with me that parents kind of just look at you if you talk about mental health needs as though you're being a delicate snowflake <laughs> and you know it's like where are you getting all of these white people's ideas from uh, <laughs> but i think that um there's a bit of um yeah there's no simple solution it needs to this communication needs to come from government it needs to come from schools it needs to come from gps that regardless of ethnicity and culture people's mental health needs are similar well, we're all human beings at the end of the day, aren't we? We're all human beings. And men and women are human beings too. Yeah. So what are some of the key misconceptions that women have about men? <laughs> I think we touched on one of the huge ones earlier about mm-hmm. sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is that men don't want to talk. Mm-hmm. Men, men are happy to talk. Mm-hmm. Men are happy to talk. However, you have to keep in mind the. I often use the example when when men get home from work. How was work? They say, good. And the wife might say, he never talks about work. He answered the question. You didn't ask him anything more. Mm. Now, that's not to say sit there and reel off a hundred different questions. Mm. Men love to talk, but you have to get them in a space Mm. that they feel comfortable, but also ask the right questions Mm. because we are very pragmatic at a certain level. Is that really a biological difference between men and women, that men are more pragmatic and rational? I can't speak to the neurology of it, but uh, I believe there is a big argument for that. Okay. Thinking, again, back to the hunter-gatherer culture, and I talk a lot about this with clients, we are the advanced monkeys. Now, men in that society, we were the hunters. Mm. So we would spend our days with other men hunting. Mm. We had to be very pragmatic. There was no room for emotions or vulnerability there. Mm. Uh, at the end of the day, perhaps, whereas if you see how the females as the traditional nurturers would spend their days... That involved emotion, that involved social connection, that involved talking. And negotiations and discussions. And, correct, yeah. correct. If you're mm. on the, the the fields of the savannah, desert or wherever, mm. hunting, you need to be very pragmatic and direct. So there's an element of nature and nurture. Oh, for sure, nature for sure. Nature in that has just been bred like that, you know. Uh, people who are better hunters and better communicators have just been... Br- selected over millennia and nurture uh, uh, because that's those unspoken expectations that keep on getting of course. perpetuated. But we're, I th- I'm a big believer that we always have to a certain degree that default. Yeah. But that's not to say that men who are um, not very rational thinkers are more emotional, are not valid men. No, not and at masculinity all. masculinity is now beautifully becoming very... 
very varied and there's more awareness of different kinds of masculinity. In fact, it wasn't until I started going to improv training, uh, I used to do improv comedy a few years ago, that I started seeing men who were so sensitive and open about their feelings. These were primarily artists mm. who were expressing feelings, who were expressing um, sticky and, and uncomfortable ideas that I have wasn't used to hearing men express before. And I was like, this can be a man. This is an, a new model of masculinity presented to me. Men who cry, men who laugh, men who, um, you know, love openly and, and use words like love and, and things like that. Um, so, yeah, all sorts of masculinity is valid. Okay, so what's another misconception? Another misconception about men. In terms of mental health or... Anything. Anything Yeah, if we're talking about mental health, let's talk about mental health. I think there's a misconception that men aren't emotional. Mm. Yeah, no, he's not emotional. He's not. No, he's emotional. He's just better at internalizing it. Mm. He, he's, he's better at compartmentalizing it to a degree and putting on the mask mm. because so that's what we've been conditioned to do. Mm. We need to get on with the job. So we need to put on the facade in many instances. Men are just as emotional. So some key takeaways from today's episode are that men are emotional creatures too. And they have rich emotional internal worlds that need nurturing as well. So start going to see a psychologist if you need to talk about feelings and you don't know how to start doing that with your friends or your partners. Go to an external point first. Go to a psychologist and start getting into the practice of expressing your feelings and you know speaking and, and sorting out the the tangle in your mind right potentially but just that sounds so cliche but just start the conversation with somebody with somebody just right. somebody stop internalizing stop pretending that she'll be right stop mm. pretending that you can do it on your own because if you've had that thought of can i then chances are you can't yeah so with your sons with your friends with your partners start small Start by honestly answering a question like, are you okay or what's going on or how you've been? Just honestly answer that, right? Take, and, and, and okay, so what happens if you're honest with somebody and they shut you down or they move away because that man is not comfortable reciprocating that and you lose a friend or, or you distance? Do you, don't give up, right? Well, I would question, is that the sort of person you want in your life? If if they can't embrace you being vulnerable to some degree and you being authentic, then mm. is, is that somebody you want in your tribe? Yeah, okay. So look for your tribe. Yeah. This was a beautiful and enlightening conversation. Thank you so much, Carl. Absolute pleasure. It's been so lots of fun. How can people find you at Bloke Psychology? How can they contact you? Uh, just Google Bloke Psychology, check it out on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, we're all, all over the net, so you'll find us. Um, do they need a referral to come and see you from, from the GP? Uh, they can if they want to access Medicare rebates. Okay. But uh, you can just give us a call if you have any questions or queries and the, yeah. the office can help you out. And how many team members do you have working with you? So up until this week, it was just myself. Okay. We've just put on an associate in the eastern suburbs and we're hopefully just bringing on another clinician for the Bayside suburbs to work in uh, the office that I'm in as well. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on Heckin' Concern podcast and I hope that we'll have you back to talk about more issues in the future. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye.
ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. When South Carolina happened, people thought it was like a fluke. That's when I like got to work. I just had a month where nobody was really expecting anything out of the campaign, but I was able to explore what a brand identity would look like for the general election. Exploring websites, exploring brands and gradients and, you know, really finding the voice of the Biden campaign structurally and and visually. Today, I'm talking to Senior Creative Director of the Biden-Harris Presidential Campaign, Robin Kanner. Robin's personal story is twisty and beautifully American and feels as bright and hopeful as a victory gradient. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Subscribe to Clever wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST recommends.